Good morning. It is a privilege to be here and to be training here. There is no other place I'd rather be. A few months ago, I uh, was scheduled to preach to you for the first time, and my wife was overdue with her baby, and on a couple days' notice, Stephen had to stand in for me and preach. Uh, Stephen was actually scheduled, I think, to preach this morning, and I had a little more notice than a few days, but... um, It's kind of funny the way that worked out. This morning's text comes from Philippians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me, if you can, if you're able. It comes from uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. And he's writing to encourage the Christians there to be bold in their witness of Jesus, to embrace suffering, and to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants and expects them. He's writing this letter from prison. Did I say that? He's writing it from prison. And he wants and expects them to be encouraged by that, by his suffering, by his writing it from prison, not discouraged. So he sets himself forward then in the passage we're about to read, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, as an example to be emulated. Um, It's up on the screen. Brothers... Join in imitating me. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He sets himself forward as an example for us to emulate. And in fact, he spends a good deal of time in this letter giving an account of his life before he became a believer and the power and impact that the gospel had on his life. Since then, So that's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul first, and then we're going to apply Paul's life to ourselves really practically. What does it mean for us here and now to imitate the Apostle Paul? And then third, we're going to look at where the motivation and the power for that kind of obedience comes from. So first, the life of the Apostle Paul. If you still have your Bibles open, just look up a few verses. We'll start in chapter four or verse four of chapter three reading. Paul says this. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So just going through this passage, kind of point by point, who is Paul? Paul was a Jew. He was of the people of Israel. He was circumcised on the eighth day. means he was a part of God's covenant people. He received the sign of the covenant, That was circumcision. But he wasn't just a Jew. He was a really good Jew. He was a Pharisee. 
means he knew God's law, God's word inside and out. And he wasn't just a Pharisee. He was a student of a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a big time, high profile teacher in his day. Gamaliel was the grandson of a man named Hillel, the founder of rabbinic Judaism. You may have heard of the Hillel Center in downtown Bloomington, Indiana. It's named after him. Some 2,000 years ago, he lived and uh, taught. So, Paul was a student of a very prominent teacher. He was his personal disciple. But Paul wasn't just a Jewish Pharisee. He was a zealous Jewish Pharisee. He was so zealous for the traditions of his fathers, right? The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, saw Christianity, saw the gospel as a threat to their traditions. And Paul zealously led the way in persecuting Christians, persecuting the church. The book of Acts has this to say about him. He was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It says that he breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he was there when the first Christian martyr was stoned to death. The first man to die for his faith in Christ. He was there giving authoritative approval. The men who did it laid their garments at his feet. He was there like Caesar giving his thumbs up at the execution of a fallen gladiator. He was going house to house, wrecking families and wreaking havoc on the church of Jesus Christ. He was a wicked, self-righteous man. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He had everything that he could want. Everybody thought he was something. And then Paul met Jesus Christ. He was on his way to a city called Damascus. He had letters in his hands. He was going there to persecute the church, to persecute Christians and to drag them off and take them to prison. And then a light flashes from heaven. A voice is heard like thunder. Everybody falls down. They don't understand what's going on. Paul understands the voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is also his name. He was blinded by the light. He says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Paul gets up, goes into Damascus, the town he was headed to. The Lord appears to a Christian there named Ananias and says, Ananias, you need to go and lay your hands on this man, Paul. He's been blinded. Ananias says, I've heard about that man. (laughs) I know what he does. And the Lord says, I know exactly who this man is. He is my chosen instrument to spread the gospel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. So Ananias goes, lays his hands on Paul. Paul can see again. And immediately, what does he do? He starts preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And in a matter of days, This man who came to Damascus to persecute the church is being led over the city wall in a basket under the cover of night because his friends, his comrades, the men that he came with and the men that were there are trying to kill him. And he says to us this morning, brothers, join in imitating me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And that's just where it started for Paul. Didn't stop there. That's where it started. The book of Acts goes on and chronicles much of the life and ministry of Paul. It records his suffering. Paul himself provides us with a list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to authenticate his ministry. He says this, I was in far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Do we know what that is? By the way, as an aside, they had a whip with nine cords of rope on it. And on that whip, they had shards of broken pottery and glass that they would lash into someone's back and rip it open and flay their skin open. And it would go so deep that it would affect their internal organs. They had torture down to an art to the point that they knew if you received 40 lashes with this whip, chances are you are you are going to die. But if it was 39 lashes, you would probably survive. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. So not just persecution, danger at the hands of men, but just as a natural consequence of being faithful to Jesus, of being obedient. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, not my people, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Brothers, he says to us this morning, brothers, join in imitating me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And then, nearing the end of his life, getting ready to embark on the journey that would eventually end in his death, his execution, he stands on the shore of Ephesus saying goodbye to his friends and he says this, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And he leaves for Jerusalem. Sometime later, ends up in Rome, and they cut off his head. It's the end. And he says to us from prison, Brothers, join in imitating me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So what does it mean for us to join in imitating the Apostle Paul practically for us here and now 
United States of America, Bloomington, Indiana, 2008. What does it mean? I think it means at least two things. It does, in fact, mean at least two things. First, first, it means that we forsake everything we look to for security, everything we put our confidence in, everything we look through, look to to get us through the day. Every illegitimate or unlawful pleasure. We forsake, we call it what it is, vanity, sin, rubbish, dung. And in their place, we take hold, we lay hold of Jesus Christ. Second, it means we become willing to part not only with illegitimate pleasures, unlawful pleasures, but with every good and legitimate pleasure, every good and perfect gift from God. For the sake of faithful obedience to Christ. So let's first ask the question, what does it mean to forsake our security and our illegitimate pleasures? What do I mean by that? First, it means that with Paul, we give up our self-righteousness. Paul thought he was something. He thought he could stand before God. He thought he had earned a right to be in God's presence. He was of the people of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day, a zealous Pharisee. He was self-righteous. And we're just like him. We're like that because at the end of the day, when we think of ourselves before God, we think that we can stand before God because we're a good person, because we know the right things, We go to church, we're here this morning, we're here at this church, we stand against the evils of our day, we stand against abortion, we believe in the family, we have kids, or we believe in stewardship and we don't have kids, Um, we see the evils of the educational system, the pride and vanity of the university, Because we're Americans, we've never killed anyone. We've never molested or raped anyone. It's garbage. That doesn't mean we don't stand against wickedness and against evil. What it means is we don't stand on them, on our standing against them as a basis to stand before God. What it means is that we forsake our self-righteousness and be content to be nothing, nothing more than a poor, wretched sinner saved by the free grace of God owing to the work of another, of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Second, first it means we give up our self-righteousness. Second, it means that we give up our sins, our lust, especially those that are most precious to us. Our secret desires, the things that actually motivate and control us, not the things that we say motivate and control us, the things that actually do. Our lust for approval, the approval of our wife or husband, our children, our parents, our professors, our employers, our pastors and elders, our lust for intimacy for false intimacy, for unlawful intimacy, unlawful emotional and sexual intimacy, 
the lust that we gratify with what we watch, what we read, what we look at, what we listen to, what we do, who we spend our time with, how we spend that time with them. Our lust for vanity, for things, for fashion, for the next best, greatest thing that's being sold to us as the Savior that's going to finally satisfy us and cure us of our discontentment, of our boredom. Our love of money, our desire to hoard and to amass for ourselves a wealth of false security so that we never have to depend on and trust in and rely upon God the Father. Um, a wealth of false empty security that will indeed fail us and will one day be burned up on the day of judgment. Vanity. All vain and empty promises. And we're called to crucify them. With the Apostle Paul. Brothers, he says to us, join in imitating me. <clears throat> Second, what does it mean? That was, what does it mean to forsake our illegitimate pleasures? What does it mean for us to be willing to part with our legitimate pleasures, the gifts of God, the things that we enjoy that are good for the sake of faithful obedience to Jesus Christ? First, it means that with Paul, we're willing to part with our peace, not with our inward peace, the peace that we have with God, but with our circumstantial situational peace. We will, if we're faithful to Jesus Christ, we will say hard things and we will ruffle people's feathers and we will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's what will happen. Second, we're willing to part with our health. Remember Paul, you know, shipwreck, stoned, left for dead. Willing to part with our health. That may mean for some of us that it does. Yeah, we, we go to China, we go to Burma, we go to South America and subject ourselves to disease or rough situations. But we have to be willing to give up our health here and now. To be willing actually here in Bloomington to be beaten for the sake of the gospel. Third, it means being willing to part with our liberty. Some of us will go to prison for the sake of the gospel. Some of us in this room have gone to prison for the sake of the gospel. Remember, the letter that we're reading, that we're reading from, was written from prison. Fourth, it means being willing to part with relationships. Your family, your friends. And not just, not just in a... Your, your enemies will be the members of your own household kind of way. But also, remember Paul standing at the shore of Ephesus with tears, parting with his dear friends, because he was called to go and be obedient to spreading the gospel elsewhere. Your father, your wife, your husband, your children, your best friend since kindergarten, your roommate from college. Brothers, he says, join in imitating me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
If you're like me at this point, this is where we want to start making excuses. Right. And say, well, Paul was an apostle. He he had a special dispensation of God's grace given to him. He saw Jesus in ways that we'll never see him. He lived in the Roman Empire. Not here today. Aren't we so glad that it doesn't cost much to be a Christian today? J.C. Ryle has this to say to us. I grant freely that it costs little to be a mere outward Christian. A man has only got to attend a place of worship twice on Sunday and to be tolerably moral during the week. And he has gone as far as thousands around him ever go in religion. All this is cheap and easy work. It entails no self-denial or self-sacrifice. If this is saving Christianity and will take us to heaven when we die, we must alter the description of the way of life and write, Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to heaven. But it does cost something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to pass through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Conversion is not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. This is basic, fundamental gospel Christianity. This is where it starts. This is what it means to join in imitating the Apostle Paul. It means that we value Jesus Christ above everything. John Owen puts it this way. A despising of all things for Christ is the very first lesson of the gospel. Give away all, take up the cross and follow me was the way whereby he, Jesus, tried his disciples of old. And if there be not the same mind and heart in us, we are none of his. We have nothing to do with him. Jesus says, go sell everything you have, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And that's what we do. That's what we're called to do. Or we're none of his. Brothers, he says, join in imitating me. What makes a man, what makes anyone willing to do that? What made Paul willing to live the way that he lived? What will empower us to live the kind of life that Paul lived. First, I think we need to truly, honestly count the cost of following Christ. We need to, we need to weigh not only what, what we stand to lose, but what we stand to gain. In other words, I've told us this morning what we have to lose. We've not even begun to talk about what we stand to gain. And so... Let's think through that for a minute. Honestly evaluate what do we really have to lose in light of what we really have to gain. First, weigh, weigh the profit in the loss. 
Jesus says this, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? On the one hand stands the potential to gain the world at the expense of our soul. On the other hand, we lose the world, but we gain the eternal salvation of our immortal soul. Second, weigh the praise versus the blame or the scorn. On the one hand, we may find blame. We may be scorned by a few fallible, erring, blind men. They may not like us. On the other side, we have the praise and the blessing of the King of Kings. Blessed are you when men revile you, for great is your reward in heaven. Weigh the friends versus the enemies. Right. You you live a faithful Christian life and you will have new enemies. You have a new enemy in Satan and the devil and in the in the wicked. But you have the friendship and favor of Jesus Christ and his people. At the most, your new enemies can bruise your heel. Jesus promises to crush their heads and to save your soul. Weigh the life now against the life to come. It does cost to be a Christian now. It is hard to be a Christian now. For how long? For a few years? A few years of suffering and toil compared to what? An eternity of enjoying God. An eternity where Satan is bound in sin and sorrow are no more forever. Weigh, weigh on the one hand, the pleasures of sin and the happiness of God's presence. The fleeting, hollow, unsatisfying, easily shaken pleasures of the moment or the real, solid, unshakable, deep happiness of God's presence that abides with us, that is ours, even in the midst of pain and suffering and death. Weigh the troubles of being a Christian now against the troubles that the wicked will face beyond the grave. Listen and believe this. A single day in hell will be worse than a lifetime of carrying a cross. And that's an understatement. So count the cost and count it honestly. Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Why? The surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. We stand to lose so little in light of gaining so much. Second, we need to understand that what God is calling us to, when he calls us to imitate Paul and take up our crosses as he did, is only what Jesus has already done. Paul understood that. He saw that. If you still have your Bibles open, if you don't, that's fine. Just look over on the previous page at chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, this is Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus, God himself, the God who created the universe and everything in it, who sustains it, who holds it all with the power of his word, that God humbled himself and became a man. He was born in a barn. He who was rich became poor. He who was most worthy of honor and praise subjected himself to scorn and to mockery and to slander. The author of life yielded himself to death at the hands of sinful men, even if only for a moment. And that death entailed not just the physical pain of being crucified, but he on that cross became a curse for us. He bore the fullness of the wrath of God. And he suffered the loss of the presence of God the Father. Jesus, and keep, keep the parallel in mind, what are we called to? To give up everything for Christ. Jesus, under no compulsion, except his own love and mercy, let go of his riches, his glory, his ease, his life, his love from God. And not only that, he embraced loss, shame, wrath, the curse, and death. And he did it to reconcile us to God when we were his enemies. He did it to purchase our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we may be adopted into God's family, that we may have a righteousness, not our own, all while we were rebels. You see, God himself gives up everything, and he did even if only for a moment, give up everything to reconcile us to himself. Paul, seeing Jesus, gives up everything. Step one of gospel obedience, and we're called to do the same. And we do it not because we, we do it to earn God's favor, but because that's exactly what Christ purchased for us. We have God's favor Christ, in his sacrifice, purchased our freedom, the forgiveness of our sins, so that we no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to fear what man can do to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that frees us to lay down our lives for Christ as he laid down his life for us. And lastly, perhaps bestly, what he calls us to do He's not only done for us, but he promises to do in us. Has he called us to lay down our lives, to bear a cross, to die to our sins? By his Holy Spirit, he promises to unite us with him in his death so that by his power, by the power of his spirit, we may and can and will and do put to death the sins and deeds of the flesh. Has he called us to life, a life of obedience at personal cost? He has promised that by his Holy Spirit, he will unite us with him in his resurrection, that we will walk by his spirit in newness of life, having at work in us the very same power that was at work in him when he was raised from the dead. And so, yeah, we forsake our self-righteousness. We forsake our sin. We embrace lost. We give up our lives, not to gain God's favor, but because we have it. He's done it. We imitate Paul. We join in imitating the Apostle Paul 
by laying our lives down for Christ as Paul imitated Christ in laying down his own life. And with Paul and the apostles and the saints who have gone on before us, we echo if we live, we live for Christ. And if we die, we go to be with Christ. And nothing else matters except that whether by our life or by our death, Christ, who gave himself up for us wretched sinners, is glorified. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray.